This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Rogers News. Jeff Immelt ran General Electric from 2001 to 2017. During that time, the company's market value halved and a great American icon turned into a shell of its former self. So whose fault was it? Well, it's complicated. Jeff's new book, Hot Seat, What I Learned Leading a Great American Company, came out in February and the author zoomed into breaking views the other day to talk about what he learned, what he thinks of GE's current CEO, Larry Culp, and whether investors have learned anything at all. So, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us um, to talk about your new book, Hot Seat, which came out in February. Now, CEO biographies, and I've read a few, I will admit, tend to hew to a certain mould, which is the, you know, the secret of my success type of narrative. Um, Now, this definitely isn't that. So tell us what it is. Yeah, so I would say, I would say, John, I I wrote the book really for uh, two reasons. You know, one is... Uh, you know, I, I think truth equals fact plus context. And I think most of the context around GE, in my opinion, has gone missing over the last few years. And I wanted, I wanted to paint a more complete story, uh, you know, the good and the bad, but to, but to add, I think, some perspective of what we were going through, what we were doing, what we were trying to do, what worked and what didn't. The second one is, you know, John, I, I teach a class at Stanford Business School you know, students don't really pay attention to leadership checklists. They like stories where things happen that are both good and bad, particularly in COVID. And I, I felt like the, the, the themes, the, the examples, the stories would be relevant to leaders that were going through moments of crisis, which is kind of like all we have these days. And so I felt like it might provide a decent perspective as a leadership book as well. Got it. Because you do, I mean, you, everything is in there, right? You have giant deals, you, the purchase of Alstom, the French power company. You've got, um, you know, find out the financial crisis, of course. You've got these like sudden unpredictable shocks like September the 11th, which of course happened the day after you took over as CEO. So I guess in that sense, it really is a kind of handbook, isn't it? On how to, how to weather and how not to weather every yeah. kind of crisis you can think of. I, I think, you, you know, John, I hired a co-writer. I did that for a a real purpose because I wanted to speak with 75 people and get, you know, get a, a, a I'd say a more well-rounded perspective on, on, uh, you know, kind of what we're going through. I want it to be storytelling. So I, I think, I think the reader can kind of get a sense of like, here's what we're looking at. Here's what we decided. Uh, here's what I felt at the time. Here's what worked and what didn't work. And, and, and tell stories, you know, and, and so that's, I think, what the book is. It's just a string of stories, and we don't, we don't put the lessons in your face, but I think you can, 
you know, good readers can, can I think, reach good conclusions about what we learned. Because the story, it's interesting you say that, because the story that, is, that struck me, that kind of arches over the whole thing, is really a story about financialization. Um, you know, you become chief executive of this company that has gone from being, you know, an industrial powerhouse, kind of toaster in every American home, to this company. I think you say that, that when, you, when you start, that about 40% of earnings came from GE Capital, which was this big, gigantic business that lends and leases and insures and invests at the time. And it seems... It seems to me that the story since the financial crisis has been about the, the de-financialization of GE, but sort of the continued financialization of everything else in the entire world. Uh, I'd love to know how you see those shifts, because in a sense, you know, the financial crisis came and went and was incredibly painful, but finances continued to grow. Even as it shrunk at GE, Wall Street has got bigger and more powerful um, the markets have continued to expand and, and ownership of assets like stocks, and I'm sure we'll talk about that later, has also continued to expand. Yeah, I, I think it's, a, I mean, it's a, I mean, in some ways your question is, a, is, is one that travels over uh, decades, but I, I think, you know, G in the 90s was kind of an aging industrial set of businesses, uh, significant growth in financial services, uh, really fueled by credit. You know, we were a wholesale funded uh, you know, kind of finance company, right? We weren't like banks. We didn't take deposits, things like that. Uh, you know, kind of what I, what I, and the team and I and the board actually faced, you know, in the early 2000s was the, uh, the financial service business had every, every ability to continue to grow, but we needed to do some significant retooling of the industrial company, uh, which we did. We set about and, and, and did, and uh, we used the cash from G Capital to help us uh, help us do that. And that worked up until uh, the financial crisis. And in many ways, John, you know, in, in the financial crisis, really, even though it, it kind of started at Lehman Brothers, our business model was the one that was most disrupted because we didn't take deposits. So we had to significantly retool uh, G Capital. Uh, you know, there's a, a very strong regulation as there should have been. And I think it made, you know, kind of the sustained growth or even even hanging on to smaller pieces of GE Capital, I think particularly tough as we went, you know, let's say from 2010 to 2015 or 16. So, you know, I think we always knew what we had to do inside the company, but the challenge of, uh, of doing it through the financial crisis was really tough. You know, why did banks get bigger? Banks had, you know, if you look at JP Morgan or any of the banks, they have the low cost of funds, right? They have deposits. Uh, that's an incredible uh, strength, particularly in the last uh, you know five or ten years. I think it would have been different had G actually been a bank, because there is a moment in the book where you describe that this this sort of slightly terrifying time when it looked like you might not get access to certain kinds of rescue support from the government because you weren't technically a bank, you weren't taking deposits, and I think you managed to squeak through the door anyway. But if had banks have actually just got got stronger and stronger, and now companies yeah. that aren't banks are trying to become banks. Walmart's hiring people from Goldman Sachs. Goldman Sachs is now a you know, deposit-taking institution. Should GE have just become a bank when it had the chance? Yeah, so during the financial crisis, John, they, they didn't want us, right? So we were, we were kind of on an island of one. Uh, the, 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 having the industrial businesses um, and GE Capital was kind of untenable. Uh, you know, we explored probably in 2010 or 11, actually buying a bank in GE Capital. 
Um, you know, the economics around splitting the company and the amount of capital which would have had to have gone from uh, the industrial side into financial services was never that attractive or, or even doable. So, you know, to a certain extent, you're right, you know, um, but, you know, there were just incredible set of boundaries put around the company uh, because of our size and, and, you know, because of the fact that we had, you know, really a, uh, you know, one balance sheet. So to a certain extent, the ability to continue to fund the uh, G capital was really very highly related to industrial cash flows and things like that. So peeling those apart always proved to be very, very, you know, I'd say it's at a certain time impossible, but always very difficult. Right. Okay. Nonetheless, nonetheless th those were discussions we had as a board and thought about for sure. Because that, that peeling, the peeling apart is, is fascinating, well, a failure to peel apart. You, you talk, there's one bit, well, there are a few bits in the book where you talk about a kind of price to earnings trick uh, or the price to earnings effect, which is this idea that GE, G, investors value, because investors value GE at say 50 times its earnings, all the earnings that it makes get valued at 50 times too, whether, you know, whether it's from making turbines or whether you're writing insurance policies for dogs. So there's this idea that the, that the, there's this kind of halo effect and everything that you do gets valued at 50 times earnings and that's great for the valuation and i think you even say that if g had been a standalone bank it would have been i think 12 to 15 times earnings instead and as i'm reading this i'm thinking i'm thinking are investors really that naive are they do they really not know the difference between earnings from one kind of business and earnings from another and i just wonder what you were thinking at the time did you ever think there is something gravely wrong here with the way that our investors are approaching the valuation of this company or did you just yeah. ride along with it because everyone else did I, I think there's a there's an entire you know I, I think backstory over the era of how investors changed. So, you know, in the in the late '90s, I think we were valuable because investors could could park a lot of money. Uh, you know, they they trusted the leadership team as they should have, and 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 you know, I think Jack enjoyed uh, substantial uh, reputation. Uh, but after 9-11, you know, our largest investor sold half their position the day the stock market opened. And I called them that afternoon after the market closed and said, hey, give me, tell me what you're thinking. And the portfolio manager said, well, I didn't realize that GE was really had that big a position in insurance. And I said, you know, really, you owned four, you owned 400 million shares and you didn't realize that we were in the reinsurance business. I mean, really, that's that, that's kind of your problem as much as it is mine, right? So I, I think now, you know, subsequent to that, John, if you look, think about, you know, uh, hedge funds and active managers and all that stuff and, and the way it's moved over the last 20 years, you know, there's just a much more active investor base today than there was uh, 20 years ago. And, um, you know, I, I'd say GE enjoyed the benefits of it and, also, I think suffered a little bit of the consequences as it as it, you know, came unwound, right? But, you know, I think the less there's a ton of lessons that I talk about in the book about, you know, the need to be even more transparent about what you're doing and things like that. And so that's you know that's kind of a that was the saga of 2000 versus, you know, kind of where we are today. But was it were there ever conversations about this this valuation that we have and the way people are looking at earnings? just doesn't make sense or was it more this is the way the world is let's 
You know, I think what I what I say in the book, John, is that you know one of the one of the things that if I had it to do over again, I would have done with the benefit of hindsight was to really I think change the context of the company in the early two thousands to basically say, look, we're gonna we're gonna aspire to be seventy or eighty percent industrial, uh, maybe shrink financial for a while, and and that's uh, what we want to do. Um, I think, you know, what the board and I clearly discussed was the need to reinvest in the industrial businesses, which we did and grew, um, but we allowed G Capital to grow at the same time. And, you know, like I said, by, by the time Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, that didn't look so smart. So, so that's, uh, that's something that I look back in time and said, I probably could have played that differently. Now, there were consequences of that for sure, right, in terms of what investors expected and what they knew about the company. And from 2001 to 2007 or eight, it actually worked pretty well, right? But, but when the financial crisis came, we, we were just too big and, and maneuvering was really difficult. Do you think investors are any more sophisticated than they were when you had that conversation about you know, the fact that you did reinsurance? Because yeah. looking, at, looking at some of the recent um, sort of events in stock markets thinking of things like you know GameStop yeah the obvious example like there is a it, it looks a bit like people are still not necessarily looking yeah, look, at fundamentals in a very sensible way there's 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 truth in that particularly right now over the last um few years what, what I would say is just if you if you think about the 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 way the world was back then it was you know Fidelity Capri there was a handful of big funds I think I think there's just a lot more activity around management uh, to, or around investing today. But all that being said, look, momentum is momentum, and and uh, and it's clear that that's inhabiting the markets as they stand today, for sure, for sure. So, what are, and just in terms of what you're doing now, before we go back to GE, so you're 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 a partner at New Enterprise Associates, which is a venture capital company. Um, you're teaching, of course. Uh, you're writing books. But, but you're also, the thing that I was really interested in was the fact that you just joined the board of this company, Hennessy Capital, uh, which is basically a SPAC, right? It's a special yeah. acquisition yeah. company. These are the sort of hot button topic right now in financial markets. And I think you raised about 350 million. Yeah. Um, the idea being you then, you know, find a target company, buy it, and that company becomes listed. So what was that? What, and, and this seems to me to be the absolute apex predator of the financialized world at the moment. So what was the... You know, so... The, yeah, no, I, I uh, mainly what I do is I'm a venture partner at uh, New Enterprise Associates, and I've done that for about three and a half years now, mainly healthcare. And that's what I wanted to do. I wanted to work with entrepreneurs and I wanted to um, uh, work in healthcare. And, and so that's, that's what I've done. I think what you noticed, what I noticed when I went to Silicon Valley is that we had made doing IPOs way too hard. I mean, just way too hard. And, you know, if you're sitting around and you had the perfect company, if you, if you had Airbnb, uh, the banks were all over you. Uh, but if you had anything other than that, it was, it was discouraged to uh, take companies out until they were uh, perfect. Um, I'd been involved, you know, in a company called Desktop Metal, which is an additive manufacturing company for three or four years. I knew them well. I was on the board there. We decided to do a SPAC. And, and in, in the case of Desa Metal, it really replaced a late stage uh, financing round. 
and gave us capital to go out and do both M and A and organic growth, and has worked pretty well. So I had that experience. I thought I'd sit, you know, kind of in the sidecar and just see where the, you know, kind of where the the um, uh, process would go. So I, I I didn't raise the money. I was I was really involved with Dan, who I, and I know Dan for ten or fifteen years. So. Um, look, I, the way I would say, it, John, is I think they, you know, SPACs are filling a need for sure of, of late stage uh, venture or growth equity in a world where the IPO market had just become flawed. And, uh, but is there too much money? Absolutely, right? If, if you think about, you know, should all these companies be going public, et cetera, et cetera, I think that's a real challenge. But that's just to give some context, I think there is a reason why they exist. Are you not worried, though, because you've been through that experience that we just talked about, G, of having a sort of slightly credulous investor base that, you know, the blame is shared widely, G, and you share the blame widely in your book and you take some of it yourself. But some of it clearly belongs to shareholders who were who were just okay. not really, you know, do, doing their homework or thinking about this rationally. It seems to me that specs are kind of, in some cases, a recipe for the same kind of thing that we're going to look back and say a lot of these vehicles um, pitched themselves to investors who didn't really know what they were getting. They bought companies that sometimes didn't even have revenue. Um, and a lot of people are going to lose a lot of money. Are you not worried that you're going to find yourself going through that again, this new wave of companies that then, in uh, retrospect, seem to... The one, the one that I've been involved with so, so far, John, has really been uh, desktop metal, which is a, an industry that I know extremely well, that I invested in when I was a part of GE, and that I, I truly believe in the future of the industry and the company's ability to participate. And so... I think to a certain extent that's kind of, and I and I have the benefit of three or four years of venture capital behind it. So mm. that's very much the context with which I look at this. Now, you know, there's clearly elements of what's going on today that are very similar to even the dot-com uh, bubble. But you know, there there's parts of capital markets, uh, you know, when, when an inefficiency exists, it's fluid. And the inefficiency that exists. Are, are literally uh, dozens and hundreds of companies that have been formed that actually could be public companies that just had no outlet uh, to get there. And, and I think that's, and will all of them succeed? No, right? But some will for sure. And and uh, the SPAC is gonna be the, the avenue that they use to get there. Do you think SPACs are gonna be around for good? You know, they've been around 30 years. Again, you know, you, you've covered uh, capital markets for a long time. When I look at your background, I don't know, there's probably 60% fewer public companies today than there were 20 years ago, 25 years ago. So I think there's there's ebbs and flows in the way capital markets go. And, and uh, you know, I think, I think what, what people are saying is that this is an efficient way for a good company. This is a very efficient way to raise capital. If you... Um, if you were starting again from the beginning, where would you go? Because there's a moment in the book where you're being wooed by someone from Morgan Stanley to go into corporate finance. And their pitch is kind of, you know, if you go to Morgan, if you come to Morgan Stanley, you'll be presenting yeah. to Jack Welch in a month. Whereas if you go to GE, you won't see him for 10 years or something. Yeah. Um, and you take the job at GE. But what would what would young Jeff Immelt do today? I would um, I would go to work in healthcare. I, I think. I think frequently your careers are carried on, uh, you know, your own skill, but frequently there's a little bit of tailwind involved. And I, I just think there's just 
there's just long-term secular tailwind that's not a year or two, but it's decades in the making. Uh, the role of, you know, let's, the role of innovation in therapy is robust. The role of innovation in healthcare delivery is infantile. So there's an incredible kind of ability to build companies and careers around that. And I'm just somebody that thinks that kind of healthcare is on its way to being 30% of US GDP. It's gonna grow around the world and it's gonna be um, incredibly, uh, it's where most people are gonna to go to work and we're still in early days. So I would say that. The what other one mean? I would, go ahead, I'm gonna, sorry. I was gonna say, what is that? What is health, healthcare is such a broad term. I would do, I, so what I would do is I would, I would take, um, I would learn how to take new technologies like machine learning and embed them in healthcare delivery, whether it's surgery or radiology or, or primary care and find ways to do, to take risk, to take really value-based care. And I would, uh, I would take that, uh, I would do it either in a startup or a big company and I would find ways to uh, take market share and do so profitably, things like that. Do you think that here in the States, we're, we're making it easy enough for young people to decide to do that? Because that, there's, a, there's a risk in those kind of jobs, right? The, the, there's a perceived financial safety in going into banking, um, going into tech, a little yeah. bit less so, going into healthcare, possibly less so again. I, I think, you know, when I, when I, you know, so basically with my students, I, I give them all the opportunity to spend 30 minutes together during my class and probably 60% take me up on it. And I see more of those kids thinking about the path that I describe than, than uh, banking per se. The, the other thing I would say, and again, this has been forecast for a while, but between cryptocurrency and, and uh, new fintech companies and things like that, just the nature of uh, banking itself is going to continue to evolve very dramatically, I think. I want to ask you a bit about um, your successor's successor, Larry Culp, who's been running G since 2018. He gets a, a brief mention in your book, um, but you say that his biggest challenge at G is to, uh, to create pride and purpose. Um, and the way we've been thinking about it is that one of his big challenges, and actually it's a challenge he set himself, is actually just to sell stuff and use the money to pay down debt, which he's, which he's been doing. He's paid down about $70 billion of debt since he started but can he do both you know this company has shed about something like twenty-seven thousand staff um since 2018 can he create pride and purpose while also dismantling a lot of the g that you knew you know again i i support larry i cheer for larry i own a lot of stock i just bought more stock uh you know so i i and i didn't write the book really i i, I wrote the book to to provide more context about when I was there, not to be critical of Larry. Hmm. I, the question I would have, John, is, you know, like you could wake up, we could wake up tomorrow morning and Elon Musk could launch the all electric airplane and have 10 or $15 billion to do it with, right? So, so the world isn't gonna wait for anybody. It's not gonna wait for GE. It's not gonna wait for Siemens. Uh, and, and so the markets that we play in, whether they're energy or aviation or healthcare, which are three big markets, there's just a ton going on, and and uh, and and Larry knows this. And and the important thing is for for GE to participate in some of the next big waves of, of where those markets are going to go, 
and be positioned to win, whether it's geographic or technology. And I'm sure he understands that. What about the culture, though? Because the culture is, was such an important part of GE. And Larry is not from the GE culture. He came outside from Danaher. He's, he's brought in new CFO. He's brought in a new head for the jet engine business. Or he also brought back, actually, didn't he, John Rice, who worked with you. And you yeah. say lovely things about it in the book. But he, he certainly has changed. He's, he's certainly wiped away some of the culture that you helped to build without necessarily yet um, putting in a definable new GE culture. How do you feel about that? Is culture just less important than it used to be? Look, I, I, I'm just going to let Larry kind of speak for himself. Like, like, to be honest with you, John, I followed a really famous guy, but it was never, it was never really that important to me how he felt about the GE I was leading. Um, I, uh, 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 I wanted the company to be more technical, more global, closer to the customer, more diverse. Mm-hmm. I never asked his opinion about those things. I just went out and did them. And so I think if, if, uh, if Larry goes out and does what he thinks is right and, and we win in the market and the share price works and, and he's recruiting good people, the fact that it's different than the company I left doesn't really matter to me that much, right? It's just, um, I think what we all know is that uh, markets are dynamic and change and the three that we're in are ones that are going to go through again more technical disruption. How 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 much does money factor in? I mean, you, you I mean, it's it's. I think it's fair to say that you get a lot of criticism for the amount of money that you made at GE. We've written we've written not necessarily critically, but perhaps a bit skeptically about Larry's package, which could pay him two hundred and thirty million if he gets the share price up to a certain level. I mean, there's a lot to be said for money as a motivator, but you know, do we have a an executive compensation problem? You know, you're again. It's one of those things where there is uh, no right answer. When things work, the CEO feels like they're they've been paid the right amount. When it doesn't, they're going to get criticized. And you know, the differences between uh, ten or twenty million still doesn't make difference in the eyes of uh, the public. I think where we have a problem is there's not enough jobs being created that generate middle-class earnings and middle-class aspirations. And I think until that gets solved, there's going to be plenty of criticism about executive comp and and that's not going to go away. So you're sort of saying you need to bring up the, bring up the mean rather than focus on the. I'm saying that's why, you know, again, what should David Solomon make? I don't know, right? Some days it's going to seem like a little, some days it's going to seem like a lot, or Larry or Satya Nadella or, or people like that. You know, the I always tell people, you know, the Microsoft stock price was flat for 15 years. Uh, and, and then it's ex- exploded, it's expanded. I don't think Steve Ballmer did a bad job. He earned a lot of money. You know, he, he, the company generated a tremendous amount of earnings and cash flow that, that, that has helped them today, right? So, you know, it's, it's just, there's there's a there's a lag effect that happens frequently, but I do think that the scrutiny is only going to get worse until you have more people that are earning sixty five, seventy five, a hundred thousand dollars a year, and that's the gap that exists. Got it. Do you do you feel? I mean, when there's the famous kind of two jets example, you of course had, you know, a jet, and then you would have another jet, that, a safety jet backup, um, and that, and that 
do, do you, I mean, the cost of that in, in actual terms from business size of G is tiny, but do you, do you un, understand or do you know why it became such a big deal? Do you oh, feel sure. like you, you got oh, to sure. the bottom of why that was such a recurring yeah, theme? No, 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 look, I mean, look, it, it was a bad practice. I understand how it looks. I don't think it speaks to the character of who I am or, or how the people that worked with me thought about me. Mm. But I understand exactly, uh, you know, it was a bad practice. We should have found it earlier when we did it ended and I, I would never defend it. Got it. Do you, one other thing I'll just ask you about pay before we move on from this topic, but um, there was a, there was, G spent a long time thinking about whether to ask you for, to give back some of the pay that you'd got and they decided not to. Did you ever offer to give any of that back? You know, again, John, I, I always ran the company uh, like, like it was, you know, in a cherished way. My, my, my father worked at GE. I worked at GE for 35 years. I always kept all of my own uh, savings and security and GE stock. I bought $8 million of stock in the last year in the open market. In the last year I was CEO. Uh, I was all in all the time and, and had lots of scrutiny and reviews by the board and audit firms and things like that. So look, people can question my decisions and they didn't all work, but my intentions were always to do a great job for the company. And, and I worked hard at it and I tried my best. I tried my best every day. Diversity is one area where in the book you clearly don't have any regrets and, and you inherited a company where four out of five of the staff were white men and it was about half of that when you left um, in 2017. How do you, so how do you when, you, when you're talking about diversity to companies that you're investing in or just to other executives that you're chatting to, how do you make the case to people who are sceptical um, or, or who are going through the motions on this because they feel they have to and not because they actually think it makes their companies better? Look, again, I think it gets back to how you recruit the best talent and have the best culture. So I go back to, to kind of culture as being the imperative. Look, I think what's been missing over the past decades is just, there just has to be a focus on metrics, right? My first diversity training at GE was in 1985. Uh, I, I'm probably similar to people that are my age. So We've, we've been trained for 40 years. So there is no excuse really about uh, not making more progress. I just think we're not public enough about metrics, about how many vice presidents we have, how many board members we have, uh, how many executives we have, what percentage we're recruiting are diverse. And, uh, and so that's, you know, kind of we are where we are because we haven't measured it the way we've measured other initiatives uh, inside companies. How was it as a, as a conservative Republican? How was did you did it take you time to get on board with the idea of diverse hiring, or was that was that always a natural thing to do for you? I don't really consider myself. I, I consider myself a Romney Republican. I think there's, right. 12, there's twelve of us. There's twelve of us left. I would say he's pretty socially conservative. <laughs> but I would say I would say look, I was I I don't ascribe you know in other words my political party has nothing to do with how I treat people. And, you know, I was, you know, more raised by my parents to be very, hopefully very fair-minded. And uh, I always wanted to give everybody a, a good chance at GE. So, so since the book came out, 
in February, GE has struck this deal to offload a bunch of its aircraft leasing assets. It's now um, getting rid of, which is a big part of GE Capital. And now, and now what's left of the finance division, which is basically the insurance business, which you talk about a bit in the book as having wished you sold when you had the chance, they're folding that back into the industrial business. It's basically the, I mean, it's pretty much the end of GE Capital. So if you're writing the epitaph for GE Capital, what would it say? Oh, gosh, I think it was an extremely valuable business for a long time. Uh, you know, GCAS itself, particularly when new aircraft are being launched, really helped us have high market share in, uh, in, with Boeing and Airbus and in the industry. So they, uh, for in many cases, it also helped the industrial business. But we let it get too big. We, we just, uh, we, we let it get too big and we never got as much value out of it as we could have or should have uh, as we went through transition. And I, I, I write in the book that I, I kind of, that's one of my regrets is that we just never, we never took an, enough of a holistic view uh, to either keep it from getting the size it was or to getting maximum value of it, you know, as we were going through the crisis and after. Jeff's book, Hot Seat, is available now. I want to thank Freddie Joyner, our producer, Amanda Gomez, our US production editor, and of course you, the listener, for joining us for this edition of The Exchange. Find more episodes on breakingviews.com, iTunes, or wherever you go for high-quality podcasts. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Parametric Equity Premium Income ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find institutional expertise from a specialized team with deep derivatives experience. Get to know what's inside PAPI, the symbol of alternative income, at eatonvance.com symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC.